1: it's a big week this week, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You think I'm talking about the election, I'm talking about the last sermon in our series. <laughs> We've been building to this moment in this series called Church and Culture. And today is really the icing on the cake, and it's really, I won't say it's the best sermon in the series because that's you know it's not about the deliverer but the message itself quite honestly is one that without this message there was no reason to preach the other ones the title today's message programs polity and people what's most important in the church programs How many of you have your favorite program, this is rhetorical, I'm sure some of you can raise your hands if you want to, but how many of you have your favorite programs in the church that if the church were to get rid of your favorite program, you might consider leaving the church at North Main and going to another local church? What about polity? What is polity? Polity is technically politics, how we we do things and why we do the things we do and The debates we get into as to why we do this and not that. And believe it or not, politics does enter the church. And I'm not talking about um, world politics, even though that does have a way of invading into the church structure. conversation, but specifically there are politics that come into the arena of the church, into the arena of church discussion, and oftentimes go so far off the rails that they burn many people in the process. And a lot of people that I speak to that used to go to church, but have decided I'm not going to be a part of the church anymore because of a bad experience that I had in the past, it's not always over a specific individual, but rather an ideology where politics has come in and and twisted and made it into this ugly thing. And so I want to talk about the importance of the church today, not reg- with regard to programs or politics, but about people, because that's really what the church exists for. It exists because of Christ Jesus, who founded the church with him as its head, but it exists for the purpose of of a mission that God called it to through Jesus Christ. In his book entitled, The Forgotten Ways, Alan Hirsch writes, in so many churches, the mission of the church has actually become the maintenance of the institution. In, in, in many churches today, the focus of the church And the mission of that church has become the maintenance of the institution. I debated on whether I was going to say this or not, but if you come to our business meetings every year, you get a chance to look at the finances. Do you know what it takes to keep the doors open on this place? And that's without paying one person on staff, even a cleaning crew. We have a 50,000 square foot facility. It is a blessing. But it costs around 150 plus thousand dollars a year just to keep the doors open on this place. And one of the things that is easy to do as a senior pastor who tries to make sure that we're meeting budget and we're doing what we necessarily need to is not to go in on Monday mornings to Dave's office, our finance guy, and say, how was it this week? How are we looking? Are we going to be able to make budget, payroll, and all those things? And what I inadvertently do is I get sucked into the maintenance of the institution, I've mentioned so often that I don't look at tithing records. I don't know what you guys give individually here. And I've made that my policy since day one, not just here, but the other churches I've been on staff at. I don't want to know what you give. That's between you and God. The issue is, however, that if everybody were to stop giving, we wouldn't be able to make payroll or bills or keep the facility open. And the question is, then why do we need a facility? And then we go into all of these debates and you know what happens then is programs and politics enter the discussion. Inadvertently, we begin to focus on other things than what Jesus actually came for and whom Jesus actually died for. And so when I'm very intent on not knowing, I don't go into Dave's office and ask. And I haven't been doing that in a while and I think he's missing me. But I'll be. Who's clapping for that? <laughs> Linda. <laughs> it's Dave. No, it's it's our it's our church uh, board secretary. So <laughs> The truth of the matter is, for any pastor, any church leader, it's easy to get dissuaded and get your focus shifted onto the institution than it is to keep your eyes fixed. Not only on Christ, but on the people he's called us to make disciples of. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. All too often, the American church finds itself in this maintenance mode. One of my things is, and and I said this before I came here in the interview process, that I'm not a good maintainer. If you want a pastor to maintain the structures and the programs, I'm probably not the guy you want. You find somebody else to be a maintainer. I prefer to pray through where would God have us be as a church in this specific community and then to make the necessary adaptations and changes to achieve that mission and goal that God has called us to which will require inevitably changes along the way so if you want somebody not to do that I'm not your guy and so they called me in, and I promised the first time for that first year I wouldn't make any changes. And I remember, funny, ironically enough, we, we had um, pieces of furniture out in the entryway here at the church, and they were on wheels, and uh, decided, right, let's just move those to a different place. And it was like a few months into me being on staff here eight years ago, and we moved those large countertop things to a different place in the building. And, and Dave uh, one of the pastors on staff uh, said that somebody said, I thought he wasn't going to make any major changes when he first came to the church here. So I moved this, we moved a couple tables, basically, is what it was. And I'm like, oh, they ain't seen nothing <laughs> Just If moving a piece of furniture is a radical change. Anyway, I'm sorry, I digress. But the problem is, not only do pastors get hung up on the maintenance of the institution of the church, but the church, the body of Christ, gets hung up on that. Ask yourself, have you ever gotten hung up on when something has changed in the aspect of worship or in a program? Have you ever gotten your feathers ruffled? Have you ever gotten frustrated when the style of music changes? <laughs> have you ever got, do you think you'll ever get frustrated if we put chairs instead of pews in here? You know. It's just a building. There was a pin drop right now. I don't know what you, what you guys at home are thinking as you're watching this this morning. I will never come back there if they take the pews in. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But see, the problem is when we focus on those kind of things, even me included, we oftentimes miss the mark of what the church was established for. Change is inevitable. Carpet gets old, needs to be replaced. Cheers get old, need to be replaced. Pews do, those kind of things. Just change is a nature of life because we live in a world where things degrade over time. Physical things do, even our bodies, right? If you say you don't like change, look at your body. Are you the same person you were when you were 10, 20? Some of you haven't reached that age yet, but do you know what I'm asking? Change is inevitable. It's a part of life. But the important thing is to remember there is one who doesn't change. Who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the one that we keep our eyes fixed on. When we get our eyes fixed on the institution and the maintenance of the church structure, we lose focus. And what ends up happening is the church slowly dies a painful death. So let me continue. Let me, let me continue. Author and Pastor David Platt. How many of you are familiar with Author and Pastor David Platt? He's written several books. One of the books he's written uh, several years back, it's not one of his newer ones, it's called Radical. And if you haven't gotten a chance to read it, I suggest you read it. It's a really good read. But in Radical, David Platt writes, surrounded by the self-sufficiency of the American culture, we can convince ourselves that we have what it takes to achieve something great. Now, do you hear what he's saying? Let me say that one more time. Surrounded by the self-sufficiency of the American culture, we can convince ourselves that we have what it takes to achieve something great. He's talking about the church, believers in Christ. In our churches, listen to what he says, we can mimic our culture. Now, we've talked about this over the past several weeks, right? Is the church supposed to be influencing the culture or is culture supposed to be influencing the church? What do you see in the American church at large today? Who is influencing who? Or is it who's influencing whom? Thank you. I knew I'd have some grammar people out there. Who's influencing whom? Is the church influencing the culture, or is culture influencing the church? Let me me show you something. We're going to read just in a moment Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. We've read it every week. This will be the fifth week. And as we've reread that, what do you notice about the church? The early church, before it was institutionalized, it met in homes daily, studied the apostles' teaching, devoted itself to the breaking of bread— and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and fellowship. Those four elements. It was not programmatic. It was actually the church just legitimately being the church under the direction of the Holy Spirit. But what do we notice about that early church? The society around them didn't like them, at least the institutions around them didn't like them. The people, the regular people in the neighborhood, the church had the goodwill of those people, but the institutions and the powerhouses of the day didn't like the church. But what happened in that kind of environment when the powers that be put the church under severe persecution? Did it become less influential or more? That sounds so depressing, the way you said that. It became more, more influential. Ugh. But the truth is, when the church is under pressure, when the church is under persecution, it tends to thrive. Why? For the sheer reason, in fact, that in a culture where it could mean death if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, there is a definitive line drawn in the sand. And you can't be half in and half out the way most churchgoers are. Because you know you're risking everything to be a believer in Christ and to be a part of the fellowship of faith. To step into that arena is basically to say I'm staking my claim here and if it means I die, then I die. If it means my family rejects me, then they reject me. If it means I'm going to have to run for my life, then I'll run for my life. Because they've calculated the cost. They know what it takes. They know what they're risking. The problem is in the American culture today, we don't have a ton to risk. We've had it pretty easy. We are a culture that's built on Judeo-Christian principles. It is a part of our nature. It is ingrained in our DNA. And then when we've started to get pushback that prayer's taken out of schools or the Ten Commandments are being taken out of the courtrooms, we think we're under severe persecution. We have no clue. But I tell you what, we continue on this trend. there will be definitive lines drawn in the sand in our culture. And you will either be in or you'll be out. The reality is you're already in or out in God's economy because he knows the content and the intent of your heart. You can't just play this outward game and fake everybody else out. You can't fake God out. He knows what's on the inside. Your pastor may not know. Your best friend may not know. Your family may not know. But God knows. And the question is, If he knows, then what are you hiding for? I just went off on a rant. Let me get back on topic here. Acts 2 42 through 47. This is what it reads. I'm reading the New Living Translation this morning, and it'll be on the overhead in case you neglected to bring your Bible. All right. I didn't mean that meanly. I mean, you're sinners if you don't, but still, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sort of. Anyway, <laughs> Acts 2 42 through 47 reads like this All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Hey, just like the church, potluck every day, right? A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. That doesn't mean, we talked about communism, socialism, capitalism in the church a couple of weeks back. you remember? What was the difference in what seemed to be socialistic tendencies in the early church and what socialism and communism is today? Is they did it out of the goodwill of their hearts and under the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't do it with a gun to their heads or somebody saying, if you don't do this, you're going to jail. That's the difference. Okay, all right, I digress on that. Let's move on. They worshiped together in the temple each day. They went to church every day because the temple was that place where they met together to worship and to pray. I just think that's funny, and I know you get sick of me hammering on that, but I'm like, we barely get together once a week for an hour and a half, and if the pastor goes over, people leave anyway. (laughs) They met together every day at the church. Oh, he is so long-winded. That guy, I'm going to go to the church that has a 15-minute service. I'm in good shape if I could do that. And I digress yet again. They met together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared the meals that they had with great joy and generosity. And here's the kicker. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Before we get into the real meat of this real quickly, I want to ask you a question. What does it mean that they share the goodwill of all the people? I've debated that in my own mind and I remember several years ago when I read that over and over I did my master's thesis on this section of scripture and I, I remember having to chew on every word and when I when I was hammering through this passage what does it mean they shared the goodwill of all the people well this is what that means the goodwill of all the people not just the church going folk and this was those general people within society Why did they share the goodwill of all those people? Well, it's because not only did the believers in Christ in the early church take care of their own people this way, we have reports from extra biblical sources and historical context that they took care of the community too where the government failed, where the emperor failed, where the governors failed, where society had failed them, the church that was planted in their communities in those houses that they met in regularly, if their neighbor who was not a part of the church was in need, guess what they would do? They'd reach out. They'd help they became so good at doing this out of the natural outflow of the Holy Spirit living in and through them as the body of Christ. People were like, there's something different about these. I mean, our own people won't even help us out. And these people who the government says are really bad and to be avoided, to be boycotted, to be persecuted, they're the ones that are helping me out. I just don't, I don't understand. There's an inequity here. I pay my taxes. I do this. I do that. But it's these people who don't owe me anything reaching out to me. Whoa! whoa, whoa. God just blows my mind. They didn't share the goodwill of the power structures, but they shared the goodwill of the people. And the people on the outskirts and on the outside of the church saw the believers in Christ getting persecuted. And guess what was the biggest evangelistic tool in the early church? It was handing out tracts. It was evangelism explosion. You know it had to be. It's door to door. If you were to die today, do you know where you would end up? Now what, was the, what, was, what was the evangelistic tool of the early church? I don't see a program of evangelism there. You know how often I get scolded for not having an evangelism program? We need an evangelism and outreach. No, you are the evangelism and outreach program. The pastor shouldn't have to tell you to do that. Pastor, what should we do next? Well, let me tell you. Live your faith. Don't be ashamed of Christ. He says if you're ashamed of him, he's ashamed of you. Where is that? I don't think I've ever. It's in there. Look it up. So what is the evangelism program? I need to be taught how to do this. I need you to teach me. The Holy Spirit is the best teacher. Amen. Then what is, what is your role, Brandon? <laughs> Good question. What is my role? What is your staff's role? Your ministers on staff? What, do we, what is our job? To maintain the institution. Is that what you said? <laughs> no, you're learning wrong. <laughs> No, it is to equip you for ministry. Now, equipping is a teaching aspect. And yes, there's a part of that that goes on. But you should be able with the the testimony of your relationship with Christ to be able to share that testimony with others without the pastor having a program to teach you how to do it. That doesn't mean we won't do that. But what it means is the responsibility is on your shoulders. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to go to heaven and stand in judgment someday and God look at me and say, well, you never, you know, you never taught them how to, well, maybe he will teach you that. Okay. But he's not going to point at me and say, uh, you know, they're going to hell because of you, unless truly I was a stumbling block. But the truth of the matter is you're going to stand before him and you won't be able to blame me or Christy or Angela or anybody else on staff. I mean, Because you are to take ownership and responsibility for you. The truth of the matter is that's what evangelism is. And it's not only for those that are spe- specifically gifted for evangelism, Because I don't read anything in the mission and the vision that Jesus gives his church that it's only relegated to a handful of people that have a special gift. Let me give you the key point real quickly this morning. It's this. More than programs or polity, Jesus called us to be lovers of God and of people. So let's look at what is the mission and the vision of God's church this morning in reference to this key point. The first one, what is the mission of the church? That's the big question, right? And here's the mission of the church. It's to love God and others and make disciples. And we find that in Mark chapter 12, 30 through 31 and Matthew 28, 19 through 20. When confronted by the religious leaders, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 22, which is also where you can see the greatest commandment. When confronted by the religious leaders of his day and age on what the greatest commandment was, what did Jesus say it was? You can, you can sum it down in one word, love. Oh, really? That's it? Yes, it's love. They thought that they could corner Jesus to get him to say one commandment was greater than the other. If Jesus had said that not committing adultery was the greatest commandment, then he would have been singling adultery out as the main object of God's laws. And when actuality, all of God's laws, even the 10, that we're looking at the 10 commandments because those came straight from the lips of God to the people of God at the base of Mount Sinai. All the other 600 laws were Moses actually expounding on those 10. You want to get to what God's law was, the Ten Commandments is it. And the Ten Commandments can be narrowed down, and Jesus did it masterfully into two. Actually, one with a caveat. The first four of the Ten Commandments are about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last six are about loving your neighbor. Did you notice that? So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But the second, he says, is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law... And all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. What he's saying in that one statement is the love of God is the most important thing. But you cannot love God without loving your neighbor. It's completely impossible. We look at Luke's gospel and the the religious leader says, well, then who is my neighbor? And then we get the great or the good Samaritan story. And it's the most despised person in the story that is your neighbor. This is really hard for us. And quite honestly, impossible if we are just in our human nature to try to love that way. But when we become believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes residence in us. Jesus becomes our Lord and Savior, and we love because he first loved us. That's how this works. Does that make sense? I realize we're all tired. I am too. I mean, it was a long weekend. Just want to make sure I'm still engaging with you. All right, good. Love is God's law. Every one of the laws in the Old Testament and every one of the teachings and commands in the New Testament can find their root in love, either of God or of others. So what is what is it that we're called to as the body of Christ? To love And it's not just some random kind of love. It's the love in the Hebrew that's called Ahava. And it's the love in the New Testament Greek that's called Agape. And this kind of love, which we spent time on some time ago in a sermon series I did, is sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love. It's not a love that's derived from a feeling or an emotion. It is an act of the will of the individual toward another. It is something we do with everything in us. It's not something we do with part of us. It's something we're to do not only with our spouses and our children and our friends, but even our enemies. You know where the church falls off? is when we get riled up against other people and hurl curses with the same mouth that we bless God with. James tells us that. He says, brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. We're to be as gentle as doves and as wise as serpents. We're to love our enemies, do good to those who persecute us, pray for those who try to do us harm or who are intending to do us harm. And that's where we lose a lot of people. Because the power of hate in a person's life sometimes is stronger than the will to love. This is the essence of sin, which leads to death. So we are to love God and love others. But what do we do with the next one? Matthew chapter 28 Verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and told his disciples in his resurrected form. He had risen from the grave. He had the scars to prove it was really him, that he was the one hanging on the cross. And he says to them, after proving his resurrection, just before he ascends to heaven, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, I've been saying this a lot lately, and I'm sorry for the redundancy, but it bears repeating. What does he mean by that? I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He he is God. He is the maker and creator of heaven and earth and you and I. And what does it mean that he's been given all authority? What is authority? It means that he has the sole right and responsibility to do whatever he wants to. Because he's a big man on campus. But I love what he does next. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What has he just done from one sentence to the next? I'm sorry, say that again. He's given us the authority. Not arrogantly, not pompously, we in all humility are the bearers of that authority as the body of Christ, as his disciples, to go and make disciples of all nations. We are not to lord it over others. We are not to be selfish, arrogant, pompous. We are to serve and to love the way he served and loved. The one who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Is then the one who said, now all authority has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In case we weren't sure who we were making disciples for. It's not a disciple of Brandon or anybody else. It's a disciple of Jesus. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to obey all the commands that I've given you. Really? There's a teaching aspect of obeying Jesus' commands? Is it only the ones I like? (laughs) Is it? So it's even the ones I don't like. Okay, because there are some that I really wrestle with, right? Have you ever read through the Bible, especially the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see Jesus calling certain things out and you're like, ooh, I don't like that. I mean, he does it in a godlike way because he is God, but the truth of the matter is, there are certain things that really I struggle with. But it boils down to this do I trust him or not? Is he God? And if so, then it's to him I owe my allegiance, even in areas that I wrestle with. Because he can be trusted, he is good, and he is love. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure this I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Sometimes, you ever felt like God's not with you? You ever felt alone? You ever felt misunderstood? You ever feel like you're walking this thing called faith, this life? called faith, and you realize, gosh, it's so lonely here. It's a struggle. It's hard. It's not easy. And anybody that's ever told you it was going to be easy is a liar. I hope you understand that this walk called faith is difficult because we live in a sinful world. And to be countercultural as a believer in Christ, is to be in opposition to the world. We don't have to vehemently go and be in opposition. Just being a believer in Christ and walking this thing called faith out in our lives, in our relationship with him, is contrast enough, is countercultural enough. We don't have to go and make a stink about it. In order to make disciples of Christ, and here's another caveat, in order to make disciples, you have to be a disciple. You can't make something you're not. Not in this arena, okay? This is the mission of the church, and it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. You go to another church where the focus of the mission of the church is anything that's not tied to the love of God and others and the Great Commission, be careful, okay? All right, number two, what happens when the church doesn't accomplish its mission, It dies, sometimes it dies slowly and sometimes quickly depending on the resources it has. I know there are churches that are in the last throes of life, but because they got a million dollars in the bank, they can hang on for decades. That happens. Just just because you have money in the bank as a church doesn't mean you are the living embodiment of the church. However, the bigger issue is that disciples are not made And people do not hear, uh, excuse me, the bigger issue is that disciples are not made and people do not hear about the good news of Christ that can save them from sin and death and bring them to eternal life. That's the problem. When the church becomes so inward focused and becomes so ingrown, it forgets there's a world outside of its doors that's in need of hearing about the love of God and and the, the, the truth that can set them free from sin and death. When we begin to focus on the budgets, the programs, the politics of the church, the enemy has got us right in his grasp and he gets us off the focus that God's called us to and he wins the battle over our churches, our local churches and our communities. I've often said that if every person in a local community were to darken the doors of every church in that community on a given Sunday, the churches wouldn't be able to hold everybody that steps through the doors. And it's not that we're trying to get people through the doors of our buildings. It's that we're trying to get the message of Christ into their lives. Amen. And then gather together as a fellowship of faith to worship Christ as a community of believers. So this happens when the, the, the church dies. Author and scholar I've been mentioning this guy over the past couple of weeks in, in these sermons. And it's Dallas Willard. He wrote this, uh, that the cost of non-discipleship is abiding peace. Now, let me say that again because you might have missed it. The cost of non-discipleship is abiding peace. Churches that are not at peace, that are struggling, that are wrestling, are the ones that are not making disciples. That's, That's just the truth because they're focused on other things. They're focused on buildings, budgets, programs. He goes on to write, "...a life penetrated throughout by love faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what's right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundant life that Jesus came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke Of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with Him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. That's what He's talking about. The church that doesn't make disciples, that are not focused on Christ and the mission He's called us to, are the ones that have lost peace, have begun to infight, or are barely gasping for breath to stay alive. When the church focuses only on those programs and on the politics of maintaining the institutions, it becomes driven by numbers, budgets, and maintaining the status quo. The problem with this is that the Holy Spirit will not compete with these things. I want you to hear me. If you've checked out, check back in for a couple seconds. If this is what the local church desires, if it desires the maintenance of the institution, the Holy Spirit will not compete with that. And oftentimes the Holy Spirit says, if that's what you want, I'm done. And we have a lot of buildings with people in them, but the Holy Spirit isn't there. Because he said, they don't really want me, they want their institutions. And a facsimile of me, if they really wanted me, then they would follow my lead. They would actually do what I've commissioned them to do. They would love the way I've commanded them to love. It would be light and salt to the world. But they don't really want that. And in many of our churches, the Holy Spirit has left the building, not Elvis. Not some famous pastor or any other individual. Sad truth is, in our churches, many of our churches and our culture, the Holy Spirit is left. So the question is, as we close, is since the church's mission is to make disciples, what does a disciple look like? Okay? In answering this question, we need to keep in mind that in order to make disciples, we must first be disciples. That's kind of the, the not kind of, that is the mission of our church. We, we have this vision to make completely committed followers of Christ. That, that is our vision, our mission, and we do that by helping people know Christ intimately, grow in him continually, and go for him daily. In essence, the Great Commission. So what does a disciple look like? Well, it looks like somebody who knows Christ intimately, who grows in him continually, and who goes for him daily into the world with the light of Christ in their lives, not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ that has set them free from sin and death. And they go with that. They don't, it doesn't mean that they have to say a word about it, but if you're living your faith out on a daily basis, your life and your lifestyle should reflect that of Christ. That's just how it works. And if it doesn't, the question is, whose reflection are you reflecting? The mission of the church is to make disciples. A disciple is one who looks like Jesus. A disciple in the Greek is called methetes. This is the word that's often used for this, this word disciple that we've translated as disciple. And a disciple is a student, a methetes. And what is a student? A student is someone who learns from Christ, becomes a follower of Christ. It is said in the Talmud and many of the rabbinic writings that when a, when a, when a rabbi would, would go out that people who wanted to be followers of this specific rabbi who might have been famous and well-known, that they would begin to follow this rabbi wherever they went. And They would actually follow so closely, and I know you've probably heard this, they would follow so closely that the dust of the rabbi that he kicked up would be so coated on the front of this person. And then if they followed long enough and if they showed any kind of value as to being the kind of student that rabbi would want, then the rabbi would turn to that student, that potential student and say, hey, you want to be my follower? Yes. Yes. And then that rabbi would accept them into the fold, if you will. And then that student of that rabbi would learn to be just like that rabbi. They would learn all the knowledge and understanding that rabbi had to give. You know what's interesting? Jesus didn't walk around waiting for people to follow him. (laughs) Do you know he was a rabbi too? People recognized him as a rabbi. He dressed in the typical rabbi garb of the day. And after his baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist, and he set out on his ministry journey, we notice one of the first places he stops is by a sea called Galilee. And there are guys that are coming in from the night having tried to fish and failed to catch anything Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. And Jesus tells them to cast their nets. Seriously, we've been out all night. The best fishing is at night, you don't do it during the day. So they appease him and throw the net over, and it becomes so full that the nets are breaking and the boat is tipping. And Jesus says, You think that's cool? <laughs> Why don't you follow me? I'll make you fishers of men. See, Jesus turns the tables. He becomes countercultural even to his day and age of what typical rabbi would do. And he says, I want you to follow me. Why don't you come follow me? Hey, hey, Levi, Matthew, why don't you leave your tax collector's booth and come follow me? I'm going to go to your house. We're going to have a party tonight. The religious leaders aren't going to like it, but hey, it's all right. You're with me. Hey, why don't you come follow me? Come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. See, that's the kind of rabbi we worship. We live under. And we are to mimic our rabbi's behavior. We are to love the way he loved, live the way he lived, do what he did. And we are, in our actions and how we live life, are to reflect him to the world. And the question is, if nobody can distinguish you from the rest of the world, then who are you reflecting? And it goes back to this. Our mission and vision is to love God, to love others, and to make disciples. And it's not about a program at the church that trains you to do that. It is about you living your faith daily, taking up your cross, denying yourself and following Christ. It's what he says, Luke chapter 9. Any of you wants to be my follower, you must first deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But we get so caught up on the language and we're not sure what that is. Well, what is my cross? What is that? Oh, we know that that was spoken before Jesus took up His cross, and what was His cross to bear? Yes, it was a physical cross that He ultimately nailed to. But what was that burden that He had to bear? That He prayed in the garden, even drops of blood from His sweat. Lord, if it be Your will, let this cup pass from me. Not Your will, my or not my will, Your will be done. Right. So what was the cross that he was called to bear? He was called to bear not just a physical cross, but the burden of the sin of the world. So what is your cross? What is your burden? What is it that God has specifically called you to? What are you denying yourself daily in order to take up because that's what he's called you to to surrender to him. It might be to minister to your neighbor. It might be to go down and evangelize in the streets of Butler. It might be to lead a class at your church, somewhere else in the community. It may be any number of things. We are told that as the body of Christ, we've all been all gifted uniquely for a purpose in the body of Christ. I mean, it's littered all throughout Paul's writings in the New Testament, who wrote most of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, we get this image of the body of Christ and we're all comprised and made up of all of these specific roles and gifts that God has blessed us with. In Romans chapter 12, we read also the same thing. And Paul talks about it throughout the rest of his epistles. What burden have you been called to bear in order to be that unique light to the world? Because as you go, he goes with you. Empowers you to do that which he's called you to. You are called to reflect Christ. David Platt writes, again in his book Radical, we have often convinced ourselves that if we can position our resources and organize our strategies and the church has that in the church as in every other sphere of life we can accomplish anything we set our minds to I said that earlier. But then listen to what he says, but strangely lacking in the picture of performances, personalities and programs and professionals is desperation for the power of God. We're content with lights and the right music, comfortable temperatures in the worship room. We're content with all of that stuff without even a thought of the power of God showing up. If the Lord were to pour out his Holy Spirit on any given congregation in this community or any community in our culture today, I think people would get so freaked out they'd go running for the doors. Because we expect God to move in the ways we expect him to move, not in the way he truly can move and does move. In the early church, what do we read? There were signs and wonders that happened. And everyone stood in awe of those miraculous signs and wonders. When was the last time you saw a miraculous sign or wonder? When was the last time you saw a bone regrow? Or a dead person rise? See, those kind of things seem to be common occurrence in the spirit-filled early church. Now don't get me wrong, most of the New Testament is written by Paul and he's writing to churches that have become so, so crazy and so off the rails. It didn't take long for them to begin to institute the church and to start talking about their own personal preferences rather than the Holy Spirit. What is strangely lacking in the picture of performances, personalities, programs, and professionals is desperation for the power of God. God's power is at best an add-on to our strategies. God, we've done all of this stuff. Now come and bless it. We've invested all of this money into this program or to this thing. Now you come. We built this $2 million extension. We've done all of this stuff. Now you come and you bless our work. Doesn't it seem a bit presumptuous that we would do all of this stuff in our own strength and power and then invite God in? He writes, I'm frightened by the reality that the church I lead, David Platt, can carry on most of our activities smoothly Efficiently and even successfully, without ever realizing that the Holy Spirit of God is virtually absent from the picture. We can do church without God even being present, is what he's saying. We can so easily deceive ourselves, mistaking the presence of physical bodies in a crowd for the existence of spiritual life in a community. That hurts because they've done that. Oh, what's our attendance? How's our attendance going to be? the COVID has blown everything out all the water. Really, it's a blow to the ego of pastors who look for numbers, right? Until God slaps you upside the head and reminds you, it's not about numbers. Don't you trust me that I've got this? Amen. Um, Yeah, kind of. <laughs> if I'm being honest... If I'm being honest, whenever this COVID thing hit and we shut down the church, I was like, I don't know if we're supposed to do this. <laughs> I mean, um, I told you earlier how much it cost to keep the building open. We shut off all the air and all the heat and all that stuff to curb the budget, but at the end of the day, it's still stuff to pay for, right? And where did my focus start going? And God says, hey, general reminder, who do you trust? And I have to come square to the reality of I either trust him or I don't. And if I trust him, then I'm going to follow his lead. If I don't trust him, then I'm going to do my own thing. The sad thing is that our churches oftentimes are doing their own thing and not following the lead of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a sad testimony of the church, and that's why the church looks a lot like the culture instead of the culture looking a lot like the church. More than programs or polity, Jesus called us to be the lovers of God and of people. That's it. We think we've got to add on to that. We think we've got to add on to the mission because we try to validate our job security, right? I've got to come up with a whole new idea so that I can become valuable to the institution. Now, you know what? This place, and this is what's gotten me in trouble over the past several weeks when I mentioned this. People think I'm leaving the church because they think I'm throwing hints out there. And it's like, the truth of the matter is, this church is not about me. God's church is not, never has been, never will be. So if I die leaving this place today, this church will go on, or at least it should See, we're not building a church built on Brandon or any of the other staff. Your favorite person here should be Jesus. Okay, good. I got an amen out of that. That was good. But if I were to not be here, though you might be sorrowful or you might throw a party, I don't know what side of the aisle you're on on that. If your focus is on Christ, And you're letting him lead? Awesome. Because it's not about me. And it's not that that doesn't take a blow to my ego. Everybody wants to be liked and valued. But the person who knows Christ and has an intimate relationship with him should know that he has to increase and I have to decrease. It's the same way with any of us. It's not about us. It's always about him. As our worship team comes forward today, let me ask you this question. Has your focus ever been on anything other than Christ when it comes to the church? Has it? Have you ever called up somebody on the phone and said, Can you believe what happened at church today? I was so frustrated. Did you see that person not wearing shoes on the stage? Did you, did you see that tight-fitting outfit? Did you see that person had too much cleavage showing? What were you focused on? Well, I couldn't help it. Actually, you could. It's called self-control. Um, did you? I mean, do you know what? I might be stepping on toes here, but let me be honest with you. When you came to church, what was your focus on? Oftentimes it is on other people. The pastor wore jeans again today, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that one. They didn't play my favorite song. They didn't use the organ. It's just collecting dust. I mean, any number, what was your focus on? Or worse yet, did you see so-and-so snub me? They didn't say one word to me. They must, I don't know what their problem was. And then we point the finger of judgment and condemnation at anyone and everything instead of taking a good hard long look at ourselves and saying, where was my focus? Where was it? More than just being convicting, and I'm not just trying to convict you for conviction's sake, but the truth is, if we continue to live lives like this in the church, we will get what we deserve, which is a failing church. But it's not about us or our success within the church. It's always about Him. And guess what? He doesn't need us to accomplish His purposes or His will. Let me just tell you, but you need North Main Street Church of God in Butler. What would happen if there was no North Main Street Church of God? Well, let's just hope that if this church was doing the mission and the vision and the will of God, that the absence of this church in this community would be so sorely missed. But I'm concerned that if we were to vanish this church just like that the community wouldn't bat a night. North Main who? If this is your home church I'm asking you to step up. I'm asking you to step up and to be the body of Christ. To not look with condemnation But to look through eyes of grace, yes, there are moments when you need to rebuke in all love and care. It's a part of healthy accountability within the body of Christ. But more often than not, we need to be able to lift one another up, encourage one another, exhort one another to good works. We need to see the good and focus on those things and help people get out of the bad situations they're in. Not just in this body here, but outside. So I'm asking you, be the church. Be light, be salt. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. As always, our altars are open. Social distancing altar to my left. (laughs) Spread out, nobody will come pray with you. If you want somebody to pray with you and you come to my right, your left, you're indicating I want somebody to come pray with me, okay? I want you to come reconcile with God meet with somebody, meet with God by yourself. The stairs are open too here. Those of you at home, find a place to kneel next to your couch, your chair, in your kitchen, whatever. And pray that God will reveal to you your purpose within his story and his mission this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you all glory, honor, and praise because it's not about us, it's always about you, always has been. Remind us of that daily as we deny ourselves, take up our cross to follow you. And if there's anybody in this place that doesn't know you this morning, I pray that they would come to know you. Your sweet, intimate love would so envelop them that their lives would be surrendered to you in this moment, in this place. I pray that you would remind us that our focus is to be on you always, that we are to be following your lead rather than us follow, than, than you following ours we'll never fail to give you the praise, glory, and honor for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.